Okay, so there we're recording. So let me pray for us. Illumine our hearts, O Master who lovest mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and then all holy, good, and life-creating spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Well, that's a beautiful prayer. Yeah, I became familiar with that um, when Jeannie Constantinou does her Search the Scriptures podcast. She always begins with that prayer. And then I found it on the OCA website as a prayer for beginning the reading of Scripture. That's so um, yeah, that's great. tonight we're continuing our study in Romans. We're going to try to cover chapter three tonight. Uh, there's a lot in chapter three, but we'll try to keep uh, moving along at our high altitude and getting the overview here. Um, Father Daniel's tied up this evening, so uh, he's handed over hosting to me. And so uh, hopefully that won't get us into too much trouble. Um, let me go ahead and bring up, let me uh, do screen sharing here. Okay, so can everyone see the passage now? Yes. Yeah, it's a little bit small, but. Okay, let's see. Does that help? Yeah, that helps. That 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 that, that helps. That helps some. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. So, um, let's see, David. I think you read last for us last week. Erica, would you mind reading, um, say, the first eight verses for us? Sure. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may ever come when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation, their condemnation is just. Thank you. Okay, so do you remember what came just before this? Maybe Erica does. <laughs> I, I, I vaguely do, I'm trying to. It's the uh, the theme of uh, God's judgment versus our judgment was okay. uh, pretty heavily hit on. And in particular, um, at the very end of chapter two, the Apostle Paul is talking about, um, now he is not a Jew who's only one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, he's a Jew who's a Jew inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart. By the oh, spirit, right. not by the yeah. written code, and so as as uh, John Chrysostom reads this, what he sees is the Apostle Paul has um, sort of reinterpreted being Jewish and being circumcised in such a way that he's saying the Jews who are circumcised physically are gaining no advantage 
in terms of um, salvation and approaching God by by being Jews and by being circumcised, by having the law. In fact, quite the contrary, it increases their judgment. And so this is the theme he's on. And as Chrysostom reads this transition in chapter three, he sees someone raising an objection. He's saying, well, okay. So what was the point of God singling out these people and giving them the law and giving them circumcision and that they're called Jews? What advantage is there? Are you trying to tell us that none of that meant anything? And so how does Paul respond to that? The first thing he says is chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Exactly. Which I suppose he means the prophets. Well, and, and the scriptures. Okay, like the scriptures. The okay. Uh-huh. And, yeah, and so, I mean, for, the first thing he says is they do have an advantage. And Chrysostom emphasizes here, okay, they have an advantage, now, is this advantage something that they did? Is it some expression of their virtue? No, Eric, I no. see you shaking your head. It's like, no, it's not something they did. It's not something that, you know, somehow they, they can boast about. And then boasting is going to come up later. It's something that they were given. They received a gift. Um. And the language is interesting here. Again, I, I don't know Greek. I don't know the original languages here, but the places I've been reading, both in Chrysostom and elsewhere, the word that's translated committed here to them were committed the oracles of God. The word is maybe, uh, is often translated entrusted, like the oracles of God, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, were entrusted to them. They were given to them as a trust, uh, something they needed to keep faithfulness about. And so when we see in the next verses, what if some did not believe, some translate that as did not, were not faithful or did not keep faith. And then unbelief is lack of faith and then God's faithfulness. And so we're sort of seeing the same word come up again and again here. They were given something to keep faith with, but they didn't keep faith, are we going to say that God didn't keep faith with, faith with them? But the point in all of this is, it's not some virtue of theirs that is their advantage. It's a gift that they received. And what's being, what the Apostle Paul is implying here is, well, they received this gift, but it didn't do them any good. Yeah. And so someone's saying, well, okay, so what, what good is this? God gives them a gift and they didn't benefit from it. I mean, how, how, how do we say that God did them good if they didn't benefit from his gift? Okay, and he doesn't say that in so many words, but he says, well, what if some weren't faithful? What if some didn't believe? And so, you know, then, well, th does that mean God was unfaithful? Did he not give them something good? And uh, you know, Chrysostom will say, well, he, he reduces this to an absurdity. It's like, no, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right? God gave them a gift. It was a good gift. It was their use of it that was the problem. And do you see how the apostle carries through with that point? Yeah, I'm trying to understand verse 7 and 8. Okay, go back to 4 first, if you will. Okay. Because 7 gets into something that's a little bit, to me, was a little bit unfamiliar, but Chrysostom seems very familiar with. Uh -huh. And so I think that one will be a little harder to follow. But in verse 4, at least,
Yeah, I, I understand that. I understand that. That okay. that uh, that that uh, uh, the Jews have got the oracles of God, mm -hmm. and even if even if they uh, uh, even if they are not faithful to the oracles, they still got the they still got the oracles. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make the oracles without effect. Mm -hmm. okay? I mean, let God be true, but every man a liar. It doesn't make any difference. Right. Am I getting that right? Right. Yeah. Okay. And that's exactly how Chrysostom reads it. Okay. Only he, he thinks here the apostle is sort of rhetorically pulling his punches a bit. Instead of saying, certainly not, it was the Jews' failure. He says, oh, let God be true and every man a liar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, no matter who it was who didn't, what wasn't faithful, God is definitely faithful. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But then in verse five, we get into something that seems a little strange. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. And then he kind of emphasizes the same point in verse seven. For the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory. Why am I still judged as a sinner? And what Chrysostom says is going on here is that the idea was common and I think in some ways it still is, that you can do evil to produce a good result. That sort of good is dependent on evil in order to come about. Um, and I've tried to think of, of examples of this. Um, you may you may be familiar with the the idea of theodicy, trying to justify God. Yes. And um, this idea. Now I'm way out of my depth here, but as I understand, there was a time, maybe sort of Enlightenment era, where folks were inclined to say, "Well, we are living in the best of all possible worlds." That's sort of God balancing all that you know all of people's needs in the world and whatever else has come up with the optimal solution. So all of the evil that's out there is there because you couldn't make a world that had less of it. And so it's sort of like we can't have any of the good evil and uh, any of the good that God intends without all of this evil happening. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard like Chesterton talked about, and I think maybe, David Bentley Hart has talked about that to the the ancient pagans, you know, you couldn't have the order of Apollo if you didn't devote a certain amount of attention to Dionysius's wild rites. You had to give chaos a little place to have order most of the time. Oh. So I don't know if that's specifically what he's talking about here, but I was trying to think of some sense in which we think of, well, you know, you couldn't have the good if you didn't have the evil. Let me ask you something first. Yes. I mean, Paul. Paul's making a shift then, right? He, he's, he's got this stuff that he says in verses in verse 4, but when he gets to verse 5, he's shift, there's a shift there. Is that right? He's now talking about something else that he was talking about in verse 4. Well, he's sort of continuing the argument, but with another objection that he thinks someone might raise. Okay. That, you know, he's sort of, he's in the process of saying, you know, as we'll see it in verse nine, everyone's under sin. Everyone's going to face judgment. And someone's saying, okay, so the Jews didn't respond well to this. Well, the result was that God was glorified because we see he was being good to them even when they weren't responding well. So his glory is all the greater. Now, why are they going to get judged for this when, in fact, what they did made God's glory the greater? Well, Reed, can you, can, can you step it back for me and remind me what the argument is? What Can you give a big picture and then we can get back? <laughs> at, you, you understand what I'm saying? Right. The The big picture is... He's been showing how both the Greeks or the Gentiles and the Jews are without excuse for living in idolatry or disobedience to God. Right. 
And we've and gone in, through the Gentiles, and he's now talking about the Jews, right? Right. Okay. And in, and in Chrysostom's view, the Jews are his primary target in general, okay. because you know this this is sort of the ongoing controversy in the church. Okay. Is you know do the Jews have an advantage? Do you have to become a Jew to be a Christian? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, in particular, um, Chrysostom sees it as that the, the Jews were rather conceited about the benefits they had received and weren't appreciating that they were just in just as much in need of grace as the Gentiles were. Right. Okay. And so that's that's the big argument here. Okay. And so here, I think he's addressing some specific objections to say, okay, well, I, you, I kind of ruled out the value of circumcision and being called a Jew. Are you saying that there's no advantage to that? Well, there is an advantage, but it wasn't one that would give the Jews a re reason to boast because they didn't respond well to it. To the so, oracles. Right. Right. Okay. And so then he's saying, well, okay. But doesn't that mean they're going to be rewarded? Because by responding badly, God was more glorified. Uh -huh. And he's saying, no, that doesn't make any sense either. That's absurd. But it seems to have been an idea that had enough currency in his day that he thought this was what the Apostle Paul was addressing. Okay. So that gets us to verse 5, right? Well, verse 5 is where he shifts into addressing this argument that, oh, well, the Jews shouldn't face judgment because their disobedience brought God more glory. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so he's saying, well, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Certainly not, for how will God judge the world? So he, he kind of encapsulates it then in verse 7. He repeats the argument, but sort of in greater relief. For the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory. Why am I still judged as a sinner? It's like, okay, I'm telling a lie. I'm living a lie. And God is glorified by that. Shouldn't I be rewarded? Oh. Hasn't my evil accomplished good by glorifying God? In fact, wasn't my evil necessary for God to be glorified? As in evil as in disregarding the oracles of God. Right. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. And so then he really puts it in a nutshell. Okay, why don't we say it this way? Let us do evil that good may result. The good may come. And Chrysostom takes it, because we know that later in this book, the apostle is going to talk about um, um, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Mm -hmm. And Chrysostom takes it that the Apostle Paul said things like this rather frequently, and so some of the people who were inclined to mock him said, oh, we get it, so if we do more evil, there will be more good. Uh -huh. And so what Chrysostom is trying to say is, uh, well, sorry, what Chrysostom sees that the Apostle is trying to say is that this is completely absurd. God didn't need your sin to be glorified. He was glorified in and of himself, and your sin deserves judgment. which is how he clo clo closes here. Their condemnation is just. Repeat that. Say that one more time. Okay. If so you can. <laughs> if, if this whole line of thinking is absurd, then God's glory is not dependent on our committing evil so that he seemed to be all the better. Okay. His glory exists completely independently of my sin or the sin of these, these uh -huh. earlier pagans and Jews. Okay. And so the idea that somehow they don't deserve judgment because their sin glorified God is nonsensical. So as he concludes here, their condemnation is just. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, this is my best attempt to digest Chrysostom's reading of this passage. But if you've got questions, comments, suggestions or whatever, please jump right in. Does this make sense to you, Erica? It does. Am I struggling with it more than you are? I'm, 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 re I'm really struggling with it because it's clear as I mean, mud. 
I think, you know, kind of the nutshell argument, what I'm hearing is basically the ends don't justify the means. Uh, like us and trying to say that the ends of doing an evil thing uh, still glorify God in the end doesn't mean that it it's now a good, it, it still is a thing that shouldn't have been done. Okay. Yeah, I think that's also the, I mean, the, the, the same sort of idea here. Just because good came of what you did doesn't mean that you shouldn't be judged for doing an evil thing. Ah, okay. That helps a lot. Yeah, okay. Okay. And I mean, you can, again, sort of see where this is headed. You know, verse, verse 9 where it's going to say, we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Mm -hmm. And in verse 19, um, you know, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. So the argument, which in some sense is, I guess, not so different from, you know, what I was taught to understand this to mean as a Protestant, was everyone's guilty, right? Everyone's under judgment here and in need of the righteousness that comes through faith. Now, want me to read nine through 20? Yes, nine through. Would you do uh, nine through 18, please? Nine through 18. Okay. Mm -hmm. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are under all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are, are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What Thank is he you. quoting? I, I don't have a... I, I, I looked this up in the Orthodox Study Bible. Um, these quotes in order are uh, from Psalm 14, 1 through 3, uh -huh. Psalm 53, 1 through 3, uh -huh. Ecclesiastes 7, 20, Psalm 5, verse 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, Psalm 10, verse 7, Isaiah, hmm, I typed this badly, um, I have it Isaiah 597 through 8. I assume this was supposed to be something like 5, 7, and 8. Probably missed the semicolon. Uh, and then Psalm 36, 1. Yeah, so much of that sounded familiar to me. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't quite place it. And that's why, because he's picking and choosing from different Psalms. Right. Yeah, uh, this is a patchwork. Yeah. Mostly from Psalms, a little from Isaiah and Ecclesiastes. Yeah. What do the Baptists call that? Proof text? Proof texting? <laughs> <laughs> Cherry picking? Yeah. Um, but we see here, uh, you know, now that we see that, David, would you go ahead and read 19 and, and 20 for us? Sure. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, the deeds of the law, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Those are interesting verses. Yes, they are. It's, it gets uh, kind of hot and heavy here. So, Chrysostom notes, first of all, in verse 19, that the Apostle Paul uses the word law to refer to this whole passage. 
saying, oh, this all comes from, this is all what the law says. Now, does that strike you as at all surprising? Well, it does me because when you say the law, I think of Torah. Right. And when you say Psalms, I think of, I, I think of uh, spiritual readings. I think of prayer. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really think of the Psalms as law. Mm -hmm. Nor do I think of Isaiah as law. Right. I think of I think of, I think of Isaiah's prophecy. So yeah, that's surprising to me. Yes, and and uh, Chrysostom comments here that it, it's somewhat striking that when the Apostle Paul speaks of law here, he's referring to what we would call the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. You know, even though as I've heard, to the Sadducees, law only meant Torah, the first five books. Right. Um, and even to the Pharisees, it was the law and the prophets. The Psalms were, you know, I mean, the, the, the Hebrew canon, as I have heard, was not established at this point. Torah definitely was. Psal uh -huh. uh, prophets, probably. Psalms, not so much. Um, and yet, here he calls it all law. I have heard the I've heard the Old Testament that there, there, there still isn't really an Old Testament canon, in the sense that there's a New Testament canon where 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 uh, I can't remember which council it was that said you know these twenty seven books, this is the New Testament canon, but there's mm -hmm. never been a council that actually said this is the Old Testament canon in the same way. I know do you know if I'm do you know if I'm right or wrong about that? That's my understanding. I know I've heard Jeannie Constantinu talk some about this. And um, what I mostly remember is it's a complicated story. <laughs> I know that. So it wouldn't surprise me if what you're saying is true, but I don't actually know. I know that. But um, I mean, I know the story of the Septuagint, right? Uh, written in Alexandria by the seventy, and then or, or organized, I should say, mm -hmm. in Alexandria by the seventy, <clears throat> and 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 then the the later Hebrew text, which is actually first century A.D. Uh, and I've heard that there were a lot of there were actually a lot of writings rattling around. That's 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 the extent of my knowledge. So, um, I, I'll avoid the temptation to say something because I would just <laughs> be contributing ignorance. Um, but the the striking thing here is that that the Apostle Paul evidently at least in some sense here is perfectly willing to argue to use the Psalms and the prophets as the law here in making his argument, uh -huh. I guess, with some expectation that it will be received. But Chrysostom focuses somewhat on this phrase that every mouth may be stopped. And I mean, do you see anything in that? If every mouth needs to be stopped, what was probably going on? I pass. <laughs> Come on, Erica. Give it a shot. I don't like talking on this thing, but uh, <laughs> um, their mouth may be stopped because uh, like if it's the mouth, I'm assuming it's lying going on or misinformation being spread. Or at least talking, right? Yeah. So, yeah, and this is uh, this is what Chrysostom takes out of that phrase is this is I mean this is 
uh, kind of a, a very literal expression, stop the mouth. Someone kept talking who needed to be stopped. And so, um, again, Chrysostom takes this as being directed in particular at the boasting of, of the Jews at this time. And again, I think in a lot of ways, he's continuing to talk about earlier times. He doesn't quite yet mean the time of grace, but prior to the time of grace. Um, so as not to be seeming to make accusations against his current audience. But that um, he's particularly concerned about uh, the, the Jews who were very proud of their law and their circumcision and would evidently were very ready to talk about their superiority about this. And this is what Chrysostom believes the Apostle Paul is especially directing this at. But again, when he says pulling punches, uh, when he says that all the world may become guilty, again, he's kind of pulling punches. It's like, well, he's not thinking especially about all the world, but he'll go ahead and mention everyone. Um, and, and certainly is saying a correct thing. And then finally, verse 20, therefore, by the deeds Wait, but of the I law, want to be sure I understand what you just said. Are you saying that actually when he says all the world, he's really directing this against the Jews? But he's, yes. but, but he's pulling his punch instead of directing it just against the Jews and makes it against the whole world. Right, which is a okay. correct statement and one that he wants to make. But he's particularly concerned to address the Jewish tendency to boast against the things that would save them in this case. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. Um, but in order to not alienate them, he doesn't talk about, about them specifically, but says, all the world is guilty. That also being a true statement and well worth understanding. And so, then in verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And what Chrysostom sees here is that the Apostle Paul continues not to give any place to his enemies to accuse him of denigrating the law or being Jewish or circumcision, but rather the people who received these things and did not do well with them. And in particular here, what he shows about the law is its feebleness. And that's the word that he uses, well, in translation, of course, mm -hmm. that um, it's feeble. It had an aim to save men and to make them righteous, and it's not capable of accomplishing that. So he's not calling the law bad, but he's saying that it's feeble. It's not capable of accomplishing that thing that it aimed for. And quite to the contrary, it increases the punishment of those who receive it because they've been told what's right and they haven't done it. Any questions? Because we're about to turn a corner here. So, so, so your knowledge of right and wrong will not in itself save you. You need something more. Right. Yes, and whether you're a, a Greek, a Gentile, who has received the revelation of God in the creation, or a Jew who has received the revelation of God in the law, you haven't done it. And so these things are not saving you. In fact, they're increasing your condemnation, because you know what you should have done, and you haven't done it. Sir, so you are unable to save yourself, even though you know what you need to do to save yourself. Or am I getting ahead? Um, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that Chrysostom reads it as trying to communicate you're unable to save yourself so much as none of no one has. Everyone had the, the means to know what was right and to know about the true God, and yet folks haven't done what would come what that would call for. Okay. And I don't know that he that he has addressed you know capability, whether it's something they could have done, but just that they 
they are guilty. They are punishable for what they've done. Okay. So I got to be careful with this stuff because I will, excuse me for saying so, but I will read AA into this. <laughs> That's an AA principle is that is that you know what you need to do to straighten yourself out. You need to quit drinking, but you can't do it under your own willpower. So you see how I was reading that into this? Mm-hmm. You know, you have the knowledge of what's AA. AA says you got the knowledge of what's right and wrong but you don't have the power to do anything about it. So, so I, I try to re- read that into this, but mm-hmm. thank you. Th- thank, thank you. Thank you. Reed. It's, it's not really there. I'm not denying that it's there. <laughs> I guess I'm mostly saying, I, I don't know. I, I haven't seen John Chrysostom talking about what we're capable of or what's possible. I, it's probably implicit in that, if we couldn't have okay. done it, then we wouldn't be uh, punishable for not having done it. Okay. Okay. Very, very good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. That helped. Okay. I'm glad. Okay. I, I try to stay within the bounds of my own ignorance, you know? Yeah. Well, it, it's very, <laughs> I'm glad you do. <laughs> uh, okay. So, so here we turn the corner, verse 21. But now, The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And there's a long passage in Chrysostom that I hope you won't mind if I take the time to read to you. Because he says so much good stuff so beautifully that I I didn't have time to try to boil it down and make a few bullet points out of it. So... If you won't, if you'll bear with me here. No problem. He's a good teacher. Yep. Chrysostom says, here he utters a great thing and such as needed much proof. For of they that lived in the law, not only did not escape punishment, but were even the more weighed down thereby. How without the law is it possible not only to escape vengeance, but even to be justified? For he has set down For he has here set down two high points, the being justified and the obtaining these blessings without the law. And this is why he does not say righteousness simply, but the righteousness of God. So by the worthiness of the person displaying the greater degree of the grace and the sorry. So by the worthiness of the person displaying the greater degree of the grace and the possibility of the promise. For to him, all things are possible. And he does not say was given, but is manifested. Uh, in our translation, it is revealed. Righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. He has manifested. For that which is manifest, oh, so cutting away the accusation of novelty, for that which is manifested is so as being old, but concealed. And it is not this only, but the sequel that shows that this is no recent thing, for after saying is manifested, he proceeds. So he's concerned that both Jew and Greek potentially would say, so you're telling us this is a brand new thing, which would automatically disqualify it from serious consideration. And so Chrysostom reads the Apostle Paul is reassuring them, no, no, this is old. It was just hidden. So he goes on. Uh, picking up the text, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The end of our verse. Do not be troubled, he means, because it has but now been given, nor be affrighted as though at a thing new and strange. For of old, both the law and the prophets foretold it. And some passages he has pointed out in the course of this argument, and some he will shortly, having in what comes before brought in Habakkuk as saying the just shall live by faith, But in what comes after, this will be in chapters four and five, Abraham and David, as themselves also conversing with us about these things. Now, the regard they had for these persons was great, for one was a patriarch and a prophet and the other a king and a prophet. And further, the promises about these things had come to both of them. And that is why Matthew, in the first beginning of his gospel, mentions both of these first. 
and then brings forward in order the forefathers. For after saying the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, this is Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, he does not wait after Abraham to name Isaac also in Jacob, but mentions David along with Abraham. And what is wonderful indeed is that he has even set David before Abraham, speaking on this wise, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is still in Matthew 1. And then begins the catalog of Isaac and Jacob and all the rest in order. And this is why the apostle here keeps presenting them in turns and speaks of the righteousness of God being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Then that no one should say, how are we to be saved without contributing anything at all to the object in view? He shows that we also offer no small matter toward this, I mean, our faith. Therefore, after saying the righteousness of God, he adds straightway, by faith unto all and upon all that believe. And so he's moved into verse 22 here, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and all who believe. So far, so good? Yeah. So he goes on, here again, the Jew is alarmed by his not having anything better than the rest and being numbered with the whole world. Now that he may not feel this, he again lowers him with fear by adding, for there is no difference, for all have sinned. For tell me not that such and such is a Greek and such and such a Scythian and such and such a Thracian. You know about the Scythians and Thracians, you know, they were. Anyway, uh, but for all are in the same plight. For even if you have received the law, one thing alone is there which you have learned from the law, to know sin, not to flee from it. Next, that they may say, even if we have sinned, still it is not the same way that they did, he added, and have come short of the glory of God. So that even if you have not done the same sins as others, still you are alike bereft of the glory, since you belong to those who have offended, and he that hath offended belongeth not to, not to such as are glorified, but to such as are put to shame. Yet be not afraid, for the reason of my saying this was not that I might thrust you into despair, but that I might show you the love of God toward man. Okay. So, and I've wondered there in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is this, if this reflects something that you know, I think we've all learned becoming orthodox is that man is made in the image of God and is called to grow into his likeness. <laughs> and yeah. so in our sin, you know, it's not all have sinned and broke the law. And I'm not quoting Chrysostom here. These are some of my own ideas. So take them for what they're worth. But it's not for all have sinned and broken the law or all have sinned and acted immorally. It's like, no. We've fallen short of the glory of God, which is what we were meant for. So Chrysostom may be reading this, receiving glory from God. It's not perfectly clear to me. Sort of like, well, if, if you've been sinning, you're not going to be glorified by God. You're going to be ashamed. Anyway, any thoughts on any of that before we go on? This sounds as 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 I continue to read. Th this bothers. Me. I'm just going to flat out say this bothers me. Okay. Uh, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth. Is a uh, how do you say that? Propitiation. Propitiation by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. <sighs> That sounds sounds a lot like substitutionary atonement theory to me. Okay, especially that last 
line about being just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus? Yeah, but by the propitiation of his blood. Okay. God sent as a propitiation by his blood through faith. That that's that's that just really ring. That's that's boy. I really I really hear substitutionary atonement in that in particular. So can you get me out of that box, please, please, please? Because <laughs> um, I fully reject substitutionary atonement. <laughs> so. Let me say a couple of things here. Uh, let, let me try to stick with saying things I, I know are correct. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know if this will address your concerns, but um, they may where's help. The we, we where's the priest? <laughs> <laughs> so... Or you can take this as the session to come up with questions that you can ask Father Daniel about. <laughs> but um, I very well might go back to this next week and ask him. You know, but... So first of all, this word propitiation, um, I have read in more than one place, and I checked it again tonight, and um, I, I was reading through uh, David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament. I realize he's a controversial character, and I'm not trying to get into controversy, but I, I do like his commentary about some of the language. And he said there, something I've heard other places, that this word translated propitiation, it has a particular Greek meaning, but it is the word that is, it, it is the standard word used to refer to the mercy seat in the Old Testament, there in the Ark of the Covenant. Ah, so it's 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 a stylized usage, um, and so you know it's a word that has a meaning. But when it was used by you know the Christians talking about, or, or anyone speaking Greek to talk about the mercy seat, uh, I mean when it was used, it was talking about the mercy seat, so the place where atonement was made. Um, so I don't know that that word propitiation necessarily conveys in English what's really being said in the original there. And, you know, you'd have to ask the right sort of scholar, and I'm not he. But in particular, I know there in verse 26, where it talks about that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. To me, as a Protestant, as an evangelical, the way I read that was, well, you know, if God hadn't demanded the blood of Jesus, then his forgiveness of us would not have been just. It would have been unjust. And so he did this so that he could both remain just because there was some standard he was going to be held to, and he could still justify us. Now, one of my great breakthroughs on this was when I was teaching Chrysostom, uh, this commentary of Chrysostom's on Romans back those many years ago. And what Chrysostom sees in this is when he wants to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, he's talking about something that is true of God in general. That is, God does not merely live, he gives life. He is not merely rich, he makes the poor rich. And here, he is not merely just in himself, but his justice so overflows as to make just those who you know receive his grace and so this is a not a statement of god somehow trying to satisfy some standards it's a statement of the overwhelming goodness and justice and righteousness and grace of god that's not enough simply for him to be just but it overflows to make his fallen creation just Does that help? Yes, it does. And that was, for me, a real milestone in beginning to understand the book of Romans and the sort of thing that would eventually lead me to be able to become orthodox. Yes, it does. I'm not completely settled. I'll be, I mean, I'll be honest. I'm not completely settled. It's going to take more work on my part. 
to, to understand these verses because I think that they're very challenging verses to me. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not that I oppose substitutionary atonement for the sake of opposing substitutionary atonement. My problem is, is that I cannot I, I, I reject a God who sacrifices his son to save us. I, I, that's, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. I cannot believe in that God. Okay? Mm -hmm. So I know God must be something else. <laughs> mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, I understand that. But, when I, but, but these verses in particular make it hard to... And, are a stumbling are a stumbling block. Mm -hmm. you know, and probably, betrayed... be probably because I'm a Greek. <laughs> is that your back? Oh, do you mean a figurative Greek like Paul is writing to here? Or yeah, a figurative Greek. Yes. Okay. Isn't it a stumbling block to the Greek? <laughs> yes. The or is it a stumbling is. block to the Jews? Did I get it wrong? Um. What is it? Is it a, a foolishness to the Greek and a stumbling block to the Jews, maybe? Yeah, okay. Well, maybe I'm a Jew. <laughs> That's progress. Better a Jew than a Greek. <laughs> That's what oh. it is. That's what it is. I'm a Jew. That's, I'm, yeah, okay. Okay. I'll accept that th my thinking has become more Jewish than Greek. Okay, I'll accept that. I'll accept that. But that makes this a stumbling block because it mm -hmm. just doesn't seem to. And um, I'm sorry, I'm getting too personal here. I'll, I'll, I'll shut up. No, that's okay. I mean, you know, this is what we're doing here, right? <laughs> yeah. it, it's good if we can, you know, gnaw on these things and work through them because this, this is a hard book. And yeah. uh, Erica, I know you don't like to talk very much, but is this much of a problem for you as it is for me? I, I, I really wrestle with all this. I, I mean, it definitely has uh, come up. Uh, maybe not as much uh, now. I think, uh, you know, being away from the Presbyterians has done me good. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think for me, kind of, the, you know, I've dealt with scrupulosity terribly uh, in the past and, you know, occasionally kind of flares up. So that's when I struggle with it more than, than other times. I just don't want to feel alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I know I was certainly trained to read these passages in a certain way. And of course, you know, the Romans road, Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And it's like, it's, it's a struggle to learn to read these differently and to learn that this other way of reading is not just something someone made up, but is in fact has a far richer heritage and uh, greater weight behind it than the sources that I learned from. I, 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 think, I think you make a very good point there. I think you make a very good point there. I think the heart of that's I think that's the heart of my struggle. Is, you know, because I'm I, I, I don't I can't claim one Protestant church, right? Because I was baptized as a Presbyterian. I was confirmed as a Methodist. Went to a Baptist church when I was in high school. When I came back to church, I came back to the Disciples of Christ, who went from there to the Episcopalians. But, but that's all. But it's just I've got I've done I've got all these different kinds of Protestantism in me. And the Protestants and all Protestants of all denominations, I think, really. Uh, hold on for just a second. I'm sorry. What, honey? How long are you going to Oh, another half an hour. And all Pro I'm sorry, all That's Protestants, fine. all Protestants love Romans. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's kind of what you were saying, wasn't it? Yeah, the Romans Road. <laughs> yeah, so so I I think that might be that might be the heart of my struggle, or, or or a big part of my struggle. Well, and I know for me it was, uh, I think it was a big thing when I could realize that. Well, you know, as we talked about the Romans Road, the way to lead someone to be saved from Scripture, that we were hop skipping and jumping through Romans which is a silly way to read anything. Yeah. And that's when I really wanted to try to read Romans as a whole and follow the argument as the Apostle Paul was making it, which I found was beyond me. Um, and that's why I was so grateful to have Chrysostom as a guide. And mm -hmm. it becomes a, a much more glorious story. And I, you know, that was drawing me well before I became Orthodox. So, yeah, I, I think I'm familiar with your struggle. Um, By the way, I just did a blog search. Yes. And Father Stevens got 10 different blog entries in which he mentions propitiation. So, okay. <laughs> I may, I'll probably, I'll probably, I, I, I know. <laughs> I, don't, I, I I know I'm going to end up reading all 10 of those because mm -hmm. I find Father Stephen very helpful on these things. Well, and if I may read a little bit more of Chrysostom on verses 24 and 25, this may be a little helpful as well. Okay. See by how many proofs he makes good what was said. Again, I'm, sorry, I'm having a hard is, time hearing you. I'm sorry. It says, see by how many proofs he makes good what was said. First, from the worthiness of the person, for it is not a man who doeth these things, that he should be too weak for it, but God all-powerful. For it is to God, he says, that the righteousness belongs. We read the righteousness from God. Right. Again, from the law and the prophets. For you need not be afraid at hearing the without the law, inasmuch as the law itself approves this. Thirdly, from the sacrifices under the old dispensation, for it was on this ground that he said, in his blood, which is uh, there in verse 25, to call to their minds those sheep and calves. For if the sacrifices of things without reason, he means, cleared from sin, much more would this, much more would this blood. And he does not say barely, and he says a Greek word, but instead he says this other Greek word. <laughs> um, I think, it's referring to the word redemption in verse 24, his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But he says, it's not just that, it's entire redemption to show that we should come no more into such slavery. And for the same reason, he calls it a propitiation to show that if the type had such force, much more would the reality display the same. And when he calls the propitiation of type that makes me wonder if in fact he's thinking specifically of the mercy seat where you know on the, on the annual day of atonement the high priest would come in with the blood and sprinkle it there before the the mercy seat and so you know he's saying if this um the the, the type which was the type of the reality that christ would be um had such force how much more the reality that the mercy seat was a, a shadow, a type of. Um, but to show that it was no novel thing or reason, he says foreordained. And by saying God foreordained and showing that the good deed is the father's, he showeth it to be the son's also. For the father foreordained, but Christ in his own blood wrought the whole aright. Um, so anyway, Chrysostom goes on and he talks about... Um, that helped a lot, by the way. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. You would probably love going through and actually reading this whole series of, of um, commentaries. They're actually homilies that St. John Chrysostom does because they're vastly richer than what I can try to give us here. Uh -huh. And here it's filtered through my own confusion. So, <laughs> um, But he says here... Um, he talks about the forbearance of God in verse 25. Um, 
in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. And then in verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. And essentially, if I understand Chrysostom right, what he sees Paul doing here is saying, look, all this time in the past, God allowed these things to go on. He was patient with them as men descended into deeper and deeper idolatry and as the Jews did not obey the law. And he let everything become a complete mess. Why? Because he is so good and so just and so living that those would be demonstrated more fully by his at the present time bringing in a salvation that was greater than all of this sin and mess and chaos, if you will. So essentially, he shows the depths of his goodness by showing, you know, by allowing men, you know, patiently allowing men to descend deeper and deeper into their own uh, sin and ignorance and disobedience and idolatry and showing that his grace is still more than adequate to, to bring them salvation and not just salvation, but ju uh, justification, righteousness. Okay, so we should try to finish this up. Would um, someone be willing to read us 27 through 31? Read, I'm going to have to bail on you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks my for daughter, my daughter has cooked. My daughter has cooked dinner for us. I'm, uh, we're visiting her house. And my daughter has cooked dinner for us, and everybody's about to sit down and eat dinner. So I, I'm going to have to go. Okay. I understand. It's good I'll, to have I'll, you with us. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm real sorry I can't stay, and 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 I'll catch the I'll catch the end of this. Uh, you know, through the through the recording. Okay, I, I'm hoping to wrap it up pretty quickly here. Okay. Good to see you, Erica. Thank you, Reed. You too. Have a good evening. You're welcome. Right, Take bye -bye. care. Bye bye. Well, I'll go ahead and read it then. It says, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And um, we see here that uh, you know, Chrysostom comments that here the Apostle Paul wants to bring in another law, the law of faith. Uh, so just like he's played around with what, what do we mean by Jew and what do we mean by circumcision? Here's going to talk about, well, what do we mean by law? Um, and again, as I think he talked about it, I, I didn't get a chance to get my notes together on these last few verses, but he talks about this boasting. And the thing is, uh, people who, he's saying people who have been forgiven, who have been pardoned, um, you know, it's, it's unseemly if then they go about boasting as though they had never been guilty of the thing that, uh, that, that they have been pardoned of. Um, and so, in any case, uh, he mentions this. He really sort of tries to nail this down finally. In verse 29, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So to make it very clear what he's been saying all along, the Jew has no advantage over the Gentile in regard to this salvation and this justification. Um, and then finally, at the very end, verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And uh, Chrysostom says here, quite consistently, the Apostle Paul does not speak ill of the law at all. And so he says, now that we've said that the law doesn't save, are we then making the law void? He says, no. On the contrary, we are saying that the law was always after the right thing. It was after righteousness. 
it was after salvation, but the law itself was unable to carry that through. And this salvation by God's grace through faith is accomplishing the thing that the law aimed at but could not reach. And so far from nullifying the law, we're affirming it entirely that it was after the right thing, but we needed something else to get us there. Kind of thinking of the metaphor from last week, what was it? Uh, the law is the, uh, the torch and then uh, redemption is the sun. Uh, it's so, yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, in in Saint Irenaeus, and I know that image has really struck me over the years. That, you know, I think as as a as an evangelical, we were always taught the law law is the wrong kind of thing. You know, law and grace are in opposition, or law and faith, and that image is like no no no, law was the right kind of thing. It was a light in a dark place, but it wasn't the light right yeah and once the sun rises then you see and so yeah i think you're right this is the same sort of an image here so i think that gets us through the chapter only about 15 minutes over time okay anything else you'd like to comment or ask or um I can't think of anything at this time. Okay. Well, it's good to see you tonight. Likewise, you too. Um, I guess I'll stop the recording. Uh, I guess I'll stop screen sharing. And then I'll stop the recording. If I can find it. There we go.